You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We are going to continue in Galatians after taking a week off last week. We'll pick up where we left off in Galatians chapter 3. We will start in verse 13. If you have your Bibles or your app, uh, you can follow along on the screen as well. And as we approach God's Word, let's remember as we open up His Word, this is God's inspired word. This means that it's God breathed. He speaks to us today, and that's a great blessing. I don't think we take, we take it for granted sometimes. We don't, we're not reading it as a textbook or hearing it as just uh, another popular book in our culture. Uh, these are God's words to us, and so we want to pay attention and receive them well, starting in verse 13 in chapter 3 of Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. This is God's word. Remember, Paul writes this letter to a group of Christians to correct them, to encourage them, uh, to strengthen them in understanding what it means to know Jesus and to trust in the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith. He ever received a letter from a friend And in the midst of that letter, you're reading that letter. Halfway through, you take a break, take a few days off, maybe a week, and come back to it and finish the other part of the letter. That's strange, right? That's that's not the way we read letters. We we read it in one coherent thought. And yet, we're kind of reading this letter that Paul is writing in a a strange fashion. We're reading it not entirely as it's meant to to be given. This would be read to the church in one sitting. And so, when we when we take three months, four months to read this letter that Paul writes, um, we're going to lose something by breaking it up. And so it's good to 
Remember, where is Paul coming from? What's the heart of this message? What's that coherent, cohesive, unified message? And here, here it is, because we're a few weeks in now. It's, it's good to remember where we've come and what we're, what we're learning about. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he lived our life so that by faith in Christ, we would be treated as if we lived his. So this is what Paul is saying. This is what he's reminding them of. And they've been distorted, this message, this, this simple, concise message of the gospel has been distorted and they've become confused. So Paul is taking time to remind them when Jesus died on the cross, he was treated as if he lived your life. Punished for disobedience, lack of faithfulness, rebellion against God. And, and we, by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus, were treated as if we lived his. Adopted, accepted, forgiven, restored in relationship with God. See verse 13 and 14 again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Salvation is more than just a forgiveness of sin. Sometimes we boil down Christianity and following Jesus just as a, that get out of hell, hell card, right? Okay, I believe in Jesus, my sins are forgiven, and I'm, and I'm safe. But it is so much more than that. It is this profound bond of peace and relationship with God forever. And it's not because this blessing has come to us because of what we have done, but it relies on God. This blessing relies on God, what he has done for us. And that's our, that's our message today in this passage. It's about knowing the truth of God who is always faithful, that he's a promise-keeping God, that he's merciful and gracious, that he will do exactly what he said he will do. He is a promise-keeping God, and not a single one of his promises will fail. And his promise from the very beginning was to rescue his people through Jesus, through his son. And I've been learning about grace, the grace of God, for about 20 years, as I've been a Christian for about 20 years, and I've been talking about the grace of God in some fashion for about that same amount of time, and I'm still trying to apply it to my life. I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to, to apply it deep within our heart, and I imagine if you've been a Christian for decades, you're still trying to do the same. And some, even along 20 years, 40 years, however long it is, uh, Something I've come to learn is whenever you're talking about grace and learning about grace and talking about salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, there's always going to be one person, maybe many people in the room that raise their hand and say, if we're saved by grace, does it mean we don't have to obey God's law anymore? There's always going to be people say, well, wait a minute. All of this salvation, not because of what you do, but what God does, it kind of bothers me a little bit. If, I, if I'm saved by Jesus' righteousness, then what motivation do I have in my life to be righteous at all if my righteousness isn't what counts for salvation? If I become a Christian who believes in salvation by grace, do I need to change my life? And if you say yes, then what does that mean about the grace of God? Anybody here? You don't have to tell me, but anybody here like feeling those thoughts, thinking those thoughts, have had those questions about what it means to be a Christian. 
Well, these questions and many more like them are not only the questions that you and I wrestle with today, they are the questions that these early Christians in Galatia are wrestling with, and Paul is addressing that conflict. He is addressing the questions that they have about how does the grace of God and righteousness and the law of God, how is there harmony? How does it work together? And these questions that they were wrestling with caused them to fall into a trap because they couldn't reconcile it in their mind, because they had those suspicions, well, if, it, if I'm saved by the righteousness of Christ, then I don't have to change my life. It caused them to fall into a trap. The trap led to Christians feeling insecure about their salvation, feeling the need to constantly strive to find their freedom in God, to feel that they were accepted by God. Every time they sinned, they felt not only guilty, they felt under the, the wrath of God and punishment of God. So they spent their days just striving to be good, striving to work, to know that they were in the kindness and the graces of God. And Paul is saying, you've fallen into a trap. And this passage aims to set them free from that prison. The curse of trying to find their way into God's arms, into his love, into God's acceptance through their own record or character. And Paul does this, he sets them free and reminds them of the gospel by reminding his readers that God's promise to rescue his people by grace was his plan all along. It was always by grace through faith. It's not a new concept, it's a concept, it was the original plan, the original concept of God was that his promise would be given to his people and it would be a gracious promise received by faith the original concept of God. The entire Bible comes together to tell this same story that the promise of God to graciously save his people on the basis of faith in him was the plan all along. And anticipating what they mean, he, they, what, what he means, uh, they say, what, what are you talking about that this was God's plan all along? And then he launches into verse 15. He says, okay, let me explain it to you. And we're going to walk through this explanation because it informs us. It helps us. It shows us how the God's story has always been this story of resting in him and not in our works. Because some of us might think the Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament filled with rules, filled with the moral law, filled with the ceremonial, sacrificial laws. Okay, the Old Testament, there used to be a way of finding our favor and relationship with God through what we did. And then Jesus came and Jesus made it better. And now it's not about our works, it's about our faith. And Paul says, it's always been about faith. Let me explain it to you. And he says, let me give you a human example. Let's say a loved one leaves a will. This is how Paul is launching into it. He says, let's say a loved one dies and they've left a will. This will cannot be changed. This will is binding. He says this is a covenant. This is like an earthly covenant that's been ratified and created. And you can't change it. And our human legal system recognizes that these covenants are, are binding and we must honor the conditions of this covenant to the, the letter of the law, without exception. And then he says, well, this is how God operates. This is how God has established a relationship with his people from the very beginning. He's made a promise that cannot be changed. And the promise is this. He came to a man named Abraham. 
Let me take a moment here. And I read a long passage here in Galatians 3, and I'm going to assume that some of you, as you were listening, were saying, I don't have any idea what's going on. <laughs> Who are these people? What's happening? So this is a kind of a portion in Galatians where there's this really wordy. It's kind of, he, he's, he's weaving in a lot of stuff. But he says, you know Abraham. Let me tell you about Abraham. God came to Abraham, and he made a promise to Abraham. Abraham had nothing. He, he had no land. He had no people. He had no children. He had no heir. He had no one to take on his name. And, and God came to Abraham and said, I am going to make you a great nation. And from you, all nations will be blessed. And anyone who curses you will be cursed. And anyone who blesses you will be blessed. And he says, but I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. We don't have a kid. He says, that's not going to stop me. This is my promise to you. You're going to have a family, and it's going to be so big, it will, out, it will outnumber the vastness and numbers of the stars. He says, if you can count all the stars in the sky, well, then you can count the children that will come from your family. All of this promise to Abraham, and he says, you're going to have a land, you're going to have a people, you're going to be established, and, and all nations are going to be blessed because of the promise to you, Abraham. And then here in verse 16, the promise is made to Abraham and his seed. So Paul says something, he clarifies this here. He says, this promise is made not to seeds, not to like people, but to person. It's talking about Jesus. The blessing that will come from Abraham that will bless all nations is Jesus Christ. And this blessing is more, more than meets the eye. It's not just a person. It's more than land. It's more than a great nation. It's more than a social blessing, the blessing that God is giving to Abraham is a relationship with himself. The blessing is a relationship with God, a bond so personal, so relational, so secure that can never be severed, that once it's been established, it cannot be nullified. The promise to Abraham had a, had a first fulfillment Abraham did get a land. He did have a son. He did have a family. This family grew, but there was more. The ultimate blessing, the blessing of all blessings, was a relationship with God that would never end. A relationship with God that was based on his kindness, on his faithfulness, on his promise, and not on Abraham's endurance of his character or his record. This is the way it always has been for God's people. Therefore, if we want blessing, we need to know Jesus. If we want blessing from God, we need to know the blessing of Christ. For this was God's plan from the very beginning. I don't think we understand blessing in our culture as it's meant to be understood. I think the extent of our blessing today is like when someone sneezes. And that, that's it. That's like, that's all I got. Bless you. God bless you. Blessing is a, it's a really beautiful thing. We understand it as it was meant to be understood in, in a biblical context. For God's people, blessing was so profound. It was something they longed for, something they lived for. Blessing was a, a beautiful thing. It was more than just a nice feeling or a sweet sentiment. It was, it was a blessing of life. It was a blessing of a continuation of your well-being. To bless somebody said, you have a future. You matter. 
and, you, and I will show you that you matter by, by giving you tangible things in your life and things will happen to you as a demonstration that, that you're not alone, that God loves you, that he is a kind father and your future is secure. We shouldn't waste our blessings just on some, when someone sneezes. Right, this blessing to bless somebody us to give them this profound and beautiful honor. And this is what God does to Abraham. Without blessing, we dry up and we have nothing to pass on to future generations. It's, like, it's just a bleak existence. We, just, we live, we consume, and then we die. So this promised blessing to be the people of God is amazing. Of all the people in all the world, God says, you're going to be my people. So God's making an, an agreement with Abraham. But it's a certain kind of agreement, and that's what our passage is getting to. Is it a promise agreement, or is it an agreement based on the law? Because the difference is really important, and it matters for our life today. There's two kinds of agreements. agreements a promise agreement and a law agreement. Here's a promise agreement and the difference between a promise agreement and a law agreement. A promise agreement says this, if you believe, then you'll receive. You have to believe, and if you believe this, then it's yours. A, a law agreement says you have to do, you have to obey, you have to behave, you have to accomplish, and then it will be yours. Then you will receive. Let me give you a human example. If, if I say I want to give you a new car through promise, I promise that I'm going to give you a new car. In order for you to receive it, what you have to do is just to believe me and to believe my promise is credible. And it's yours. Fair enough? Okay. So what's a law agreement? How is this different? If I want to give you a new car through the law, here's what I would say. If you pick all the weeds in my yard, and there's a lot, there's a new car with your name on it. What do you have to do to get that new car? You have to perform, you have to obey, you have to put in the work, you have to come over, you have to pick the weeds, you have to do exactly to the letter of the law what I said, not a single seedling, seedling must be left. And then there's a car with your name on it. Here's what Paul wants us to understand when it comes to how God works with us and how the gospel works with us. Is his, kind of, is his kind of agreement with us a promise agreement or a law agreement? And, and, and Paul says, this is how God makes agreements with us. It is a promise agreement. As soon as two people get involved in holding up a bargain, it's no longer a promise. It is a law. It's performance and reward. You do this and then you'll get this. What is the promise he's referring to? He's, per, he's referring to Abraham. What happens with Abraham? God says, I'm going to do this to you. And he says, I'm going to do this because I'm making a promise. This is what I've chosen to do. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And he never says to Abraham, and now you go and do this and do this and do this. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to do this. And then we know Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He received the promise. He received the blessing. He received the good news that God had given to him because he believed. How do we know that? Well, God's word tells us 
In Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and he says to him, I know you're 100 years old. I know your wife is 90 years old. I know you have nothing, but you're going to be a father. And then God goes to Sarah, his wife, and says, and you're going to be a mother. And do you know what she says? She actually laughs at God. And then he says, you're going to grow into a nation. Not just you're going to have one kid. You're going to grow into a nation more numerous than the stars. And my blessing will be with you forever. And through you, all nations will be blessed. And Abraham says the very thing that you and I would probably say if God says something so amazing like that. He says, can I get that in writing? (laughs) He says, how will I know? What do you mean? How do I know that you're trustworthy? And isn't this really what the, the kind of the journey of the Christian faith? God is saying all these things to us. God is saying all these things. He's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to love you. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be anxious. You can trust in me. You can pray to me. You're never going to be alone. And we say back to him, I want to believe all those wonderful things, but, but how will I know? And Abraham does that. And God says, I have a better idea. Instead of getting it in writing, let's do this. He says, let's ratify this covenant right now. Let's ratify, let's get this, not just in stone, let's ratify this covenant right now and make this unbreakable promise to you. Go get animals and bring them to me. So this is strange, right? So God instructs Abraham, go get a baby goat, go get some baby uh, cows, go get a few rams, go get some pigeons, some turtle doves, go get all these things. And uh, so Abraham went and he got all these animals. And God says, I want you to cut all of them in half. So pretty gruesome, right? Pretty bloody. But Abraham knew what was happening. Abraham knew what was happening because Abraham knew in those times how a covenant was ratified. If you were a business person and you were making a contract, a covenant with another business person, today we might do, you know, let's, let's spit on it. You know, shake it, right? That's like, that's kind of what, that's a ratification, So in the old times, what they did was they said, go get an animal, cut it in half. And what does that demonstrate? If you don't keep up to your end of the bargain, I get to do this to you, what I just did to the animal. I'm not kidding. So it was serious. It was a big deal. And so Abraham does this. He cuts this in half. And Abraham is thinking, probably, I know where God is going with this. If I don't do what God says, this is what he will do to me. But something different happens. God never once tells this to Abraham. He never tells us what happened. Instead, he gets the animals, cuts them in half, and then he makes Abraham go to sleep. So Abraham has no participation in this covenant being ratified. He has, he has no coherent participation in this. And God instead becomes a form of this smoking pillar of fire and smoke, and he goes between the severed and cut animals as if to say, God is saying, Abraham, this isn't about you fulfilling this promise. It is about me fulfilling this promise. And if I don't keep up to my promise, this will be done to me. It's a little different from what Abraham was expecting. If I don't hold up to my promise, this will happen to me. If I fail, this will be done to me. He's saying to Abraham, even if you fail and are faithless, I will be made, remain faithful. Nowhere here, do any, anywhere do we see that Abraham is given conditions for this 
promise coming true. There is no place where we see a brighter picture of the unconditional nature of the gospel of grace. And the faith of Abraham is a portrait for each of us. This is how we participate. This is how we trust. This is how we receive. We look at the promise of God and what he says he will do and we believe him. What does it say about the gospel and salvation? It means it's unconditional. Is it by promise or is it by performance? Is it by law or is it by his grace? It is by promise and you can trust in God. The New Testament says it like this in 1 Peter, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's the outcome of our faith and belief in God? Salvation. It is this bond, this, this bond of friendship and union with God through faith in Christ. Peter is a Jew here. Peter is is writing this, and and Paul is writing this, and they understand the law of God, and he's writing this letter to people who understand right and wrong and the law of God. And he's saying it's not by the law that we come into this blessing. It is through faith. It is in what Jesus has done for us. There's a question I've probably asked a thousand times over the last two decades of ministry, and it's this question. If God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And I have to tell you, probably 90% of the answers that I have heard, even within the church, are based on the condition of the person. Even Christians would answer that question with some degree of what they must do to find their way into heaven. I've tried to live a life as God have asked me to live. I've, I've used to be really bad, and now I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm not as bad as I used to be. I've actually changed quite a bit. I treat people well. I try to treat people with the same kind of kindness that I would like to be treated. I've grown up in the church, and I've Wanted to live a Christian life my whole life, and, and, I, and I think that God would honor that. What would Paul say his answer is? If we asked Paul, if we asked him, like, okay, we've been reading his letter, we've kind of getting his, his understanding of the gospel and how he is communicating to us, what would he say? How does God's word answer it? What's Paul's hope of salvation? We remember in chapter 2, a few weeks ago, Paul says this, here is my answer, Jesus loved me, and gave himself for me. Where is our hope? Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. That's the reason. Think about it like this. Think of the answer that you would give if I were to ask that question today. If God asked that question, why should I let you in? Why should I let you into heaven? Think of the answer you would give, and if that answer isn't found in the Bible, it's probably wrong. If no one has said that answer in the Bible and then been affirmed and commended by God, that answer is probably wrong. What we see over and over and over again in Scripture, though, that God commends, the answer that he commends, is, God, you did this for me. God, it's not because of me, but because of you. 
God, I'm hopeless and fully dependent on you. You gave yourself for me, a sinner. You loved me when I didn't deserve your love. You lived the life that, that I should have lived but failed to live. You took the punishment for my sins. You, you, you died the death I deserve, and now you, you rose from the grave in newness of life. It is all because of you from start to finish. It's all because of you. This is the good news that, that Paul proclaims in this letter And this is the kind of gospel thinking that he wants to transform our lives in everything. This is the kind of gospel thinking he wants the Galatians to think about. And he says, you guys have fallen fallen into a trap. You somehow think that it is by the law that you are saved. These are beautiful truths, but Paul's not getting, he's not getting off the hook so easy I imagine Paul teaching about the grace and faith and the promise of God, and then the hands go up. So Abraham, right? Promised to Abraham a long time ago. And these are educated, smart Jewish people. And they raise their hand and say, okay, I got one for you, Paul. If it's by faith and if it's by grace, then why, after God made this promise to Abraham, 430 years later, he gave them the Ten Commandments? Ooh. And Paul says, I didn't think of that. No, he doesn't say that at all. <laughs> he's, got, he's got an answer for that. We've got an answer for that. And I want you to wrestle with that for a second. If, if salvation has always been by grace through faith, then why, 430 years later, God says, here's 10 rules that you must follow or you will die. <laughs> through Moses. God blesses Abraham. He promises to bless all nations through him. It's gracious, it's an unconditional promise, and 430 years later, God gives the commandments to Moses. In, in doing that, is God, we've got a couple options here. Is God saying, I tried to do it nicely the first time, and it didn't work. So here's 10 rules. I was too optimistic about you. You proved me wrong. I didn't realize what I was getting into. It's time to bring down the hammer. Just get in line and just do it right. Paul is saying, good question, let's talk about it. Why the law? Why does God tell us what to do? Paul says it's added, not for salvation, but it's added because of transgression. It is added because we sin. The law is written because of the presence of sin. Why are laws written today? Because of sin. I remember sitting in a a kindergarten classroom years ago, and on the wall, there were class rules. You probably see this. this is a common thing in classrooms. You have the class rules. And I'm reading through those rules, and I, I remember it because one of the rules was really specific and interesting and strange. <laughs> and so it just stood out to me. And they had the usual r- rules, you know, rule number one, no hitting. Rule number two, you know, no running, no talking when the teacher is talking, no shouting, always raise your hand. And then at the bottom, towards the bottom of the list, there was this rule, no putting glue in other people's hair. <laughs> and I'm thinking, someone did that. Someone did, that is a rule because someone did that. You've seen it, you've seen it on warning labels and curling irons and do not use in the shower. Somebody did that. Like, we got to put that on the label. That's why rules exist. That's why the law exists because of transgression. We need to be clear on the purpose of the law because if we don't understand the purpose of the law, we will misunderstand the gospel, 
We will misunderstand God. We will misunderstand what he desires to do in us. We will misunderstand how we are to respond and live for him. Charles Spurgeon says a handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. Okay, the law is a good thing, but not to save us. The law is good, but not to find our acceptance with God through. It is a good thing, but when it is out of place, it becomes a very bad thing. The law is true. The law is right. The law is beautiful from the very beginning. It, it never ever said, though, it will save you. It'll make you better in the eyes of God. There's a reason why as we read through the Psalms in the Old Testament, we read through the psalmist, he says, your, your words are like honey. They are beautiful. I want to, every time you speak, I just hang on every word. Tell me more of your commandments. The Old Testament, the writer, they didn't misunderstand the law of God. They had it in its proper place. And what is the law of God good for? It's good to measure our life. It shows us how we match up to the expectations of God and where we fail. And that's good. It shows us what God expects. God says, I am a God of truth, so don't lie. I'm a God of mercy, so don't sin in your anger. The law is a mirror. When we look at the law of God, it reflects back at us and we see ourselves. It shows us who we really are. For any of us who feel that we can stand on our own righteousness before God and say, well, I'm a good person, then he gives us the law and we, it reflects back at us and says, are you sure about that? You want to think about this one again? Because one sin, one transgression, one lawless act, it, it taints the whole thing. It, it makes us lawless entirely. It's also a guide. The law is a guide. It, it it puts us in a position of such helplessness and acknowledgement that we have failed so miserably and it actually is a guide to lead us to our real hope and our real answer. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Jesus. Those are good things for the law, that the law does. It restrains evil. It shows us what God desires and what's pleasing to him. It shows us our need for forgiveness, and it points us to Jesus who perfected the law and lived at the law perfectly. What is the law bad for? It's bad for salvation. It is bad for acceptance. It is bad for God's favor. It is bad to, to, for love. It is bad to receive peace. The law was never intended to do that. Paul is asking us to be honest with ourselves as we look at the law of God. Admit that you can't do all that God asked you to do. And admit that you're under, then, the punishment of what happens to people who don't do what they're supposed to do. The punishment for sin is death, alienation from God. Let's be honest with ourselves, as Paul says, you need a savior. You need rescuing. And that's why Paul says it's like a school teacher. It's like a guardian. The, the law of God is like this tutor, this after-school tutor that's showing us, okay, here's what you need. Here's what you got wrong. Here's what you need to get better at. And us just feeling frustrated and frustrated and frustrated. 
And the whole point of this tutor is to lead us to recognize our need for a Savior. And then once the Savior comes, we realize, this is what I've been waiting for. This is where my hope is. It's in Jesus. This is what will make me whole. This will give me peace. The law leads us to the promise. And without the law, we can't understand the gospel. The law is so useful because without it, we don't understand our need for Jesus. You know, the the Old Testament's not weird, and then we get to the exciting stuff in the New Testament. The Old Testament isn't like the angry God, and then the New Testament is the happy, loving God. If you want to know the gospel, you need to know the Old Testament. It's like a teacher, a tutor, showing us our inability to find our way to God on our own and leading us to Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you, know, you must know what it means to, means to first be Jewish. What on earth do I mean? This church is so confusing. <laughs> There's really lots of ways to God. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so here's, here's what it's saying. If you want to be a Christian, you need to be Jewish first. It means you need to know how God uses the law to show us how much we need Jesus. God is serious about drawing us to himself. He's serious about showing us our need for him. And you might be in a place today where you know that need, but you are turning to the law to satisfy that need. I just need to be a little bit more this. I just need to do a little bit better. I need to stop screwing up so much and I need to do as God said. And then I will find peace. And Paul would say, God's word would say, okay, the law is useful, but not for that. It is useful to, for you to recognize your failure, to recognize your sin, but then to lead you to the answer and solution for that sin, and it is not you. You know, when God made that promise, remember, for Abraham, and he said, cut apart these animals and separate them, and Abraham is thinking, okay, God means business. If I fail God, then God will do this to me, but that's not what God had in mind. God was, had in mind, no, 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 if, if I fail, this will be done to me. And this actually happened on the cross. You see, Abraham was faithless. Eventually, I mean, he was faithful at that time. He believed God, but he would, he would sin against God. He would rebel. He would actually take matters into his own hands. We know this to be true. And in one obvious sense, God said, you're going to have a son, and Sarah, your wife, is going to bear that son. And he thinks, okay, okay I'm going to have an heir. You're going to make me a family. Sarah can't get pregnant, so Abraham sleeps with her friend and gets her pregnant instead. And Abraham says, God, is that what you had in mind? And he says, no. (laughs) Abraham's a sinner. Abraham was rebellious. There were times Abraham didn't believe. And, And God said, but my promise is still through you, Abraham, because it's not contingent on you. And many people, men and women after Abraham, would sin. We know the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We know the, 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 the heroes of our faith, but these are the heroes in Scripture in the Old Testament were men and women who failed miserably. 
And so on the cross, we see what God did in response to that. He was destroyed, not because of his lack of righteousness, but because of our lack of righteousness. Because of our sin. He became our sin so that in faith in Christ, we could become his righteousness. He was broken apart. He was destroyed when we deserved to be. Here's where we wrap it up. One of the most fundamental mistakes that you and I can make is to look to rules to find life. If we only listen to the law with kind of this one ear open, we're, we're going to feel bad about ourselves every time we sin. But if we listen to the law with a whole heart and with all of our ears open, when we look at it and listen to it, it will tell us what it's supposed to tell us. It will draw us to Jesus. Because if we really listen to the law of God, we will feel utterly lost until we rest in him. The law will be a good thing because it will lead us and guide us to our hope, our Savior, who is Jesus. The, pro- the, the, the promise that God makes with us doesn't come through the law, but through faith. Where can you apply this today? Where can you apply the promise of God in your life, in your suffering, in your sin, in the sins of others, in the hurts that you've experienced? Where can you trust in him more fully and see the peace that passes all understanding, the fullness of God that comes only by grace through faith?